and Advent is a season for longing, longing for the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord at Christmas, the coming of the Lord a second time in glory. And this morning we're looking at the prophet Isaiah and longing brings comfort from Isaiah chapter 40. It's a wonderful book, isn't it? Do you like Isaiah? It's a favourite book of Christians. It's, it's often referred to as the gospel of the Old Testament. Why would it be called the gospel of the Old Testament? It speaks so much of Christ, doesn't it? Uh, the Messiah. Uh, there's lots of prophecies here about the one who will come and save his people. You know, after the Psalms, Isaiah is the most quoted book in the New Testament of the Old Testament literature. Peter Kroll, in his research, found Psalms quoted 68 times in the New Testament, and then after that, Isaiah 55 times. And so we are used to hearing Isaiah if we're regularly reading our New Testament, but I hope you're used to it because you're also reading your Old Testament. So we're pointing to the Messiah, which is gospel, good news. But as we've been finding out over the last two weeks, uh, Isaiah also has a lot to say about judgment. Judgment. How have you been coping with chapters 1 to 39? And especially the two passages from the last two weeks. In the first week of Advent, uh, the passage was Isaiah chapter 6, a very well-known passage, Isaiah's call in the temple. And at the end of that dramatic experience, what does Isaiah say? Here am I, Lord, send me. Put his hand up for service. Wonderful. And what does God say? Well done. Here's, you know, here's your Bible. Get into it. No, no, it's a very discouraging message, actually. God says the people will be ever hearing, but never understanding, ever seeing, but never perceiving. So the preaching of God's coming, rather than softening people's hearts, is actually going to harden their hearts. And the gospel always does that, doesn't it? People I say, I either say, yes, Jesus, I want you as my Lord, or no, I'm in charge, stay away. The gospel does that. And in this case, for Isaiah and his preaching, he's told that that the people will be calloused, their ears made dull, their eyes closed. And uh, then he's going to find the ruin. Uh, The city will be ruined and without inhabitant as the people are sent into exile. Not a great encouragement as you start out your ministry, is it? (laughs) But that was Isaiah's lot. Then last week, the passage was chapters 34 and 35. Chapter 34, likewise, is about judgment. It was judgment on Eden. Edom. Verse 13, thorns will overrun her citadels, nettles and brambles and her strongholds. She will become a haunt for jackals, a home for owls. Desert creatures will meet with hyenas and wild goats will bleat to each other. Not a very pretty picture, is it? It's a message of God's judgment and exile. But these chapters 1 to 39 also give us glimpses of hope. And so last week, chapter 35, verse 1, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. And uh, you know the well-known ending to that chapter, that uh, the redeemed of the Lord shall enter Zion singing with crowns upon their heads, and there'll be everlasting joy. So there is hope here, alongside these terrifying passages about judgment. 
These chapters 1 to 39 are set in the 8th century BC. It's a time when the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah are still intact as nations, independent, sovereign nations. But the Assyrian Empire to the north is rising up. The prophets of the 8th century see this coming and they say a word from the Lord, repent or they will invade and judgment will come. And of course, for the most part, their message is ignored. They meet hard hearts. So the word of the prophets is fulfilled in 722 BC when Assyria comes down and overruns Israel, the northern kingdom. And then in 587 BC when Babylon overruns Judah. And so the word of the Lord is fulfilled. The situation is dire. Israel, when it was taken off into Assyria, is seen no more. Lost in history. Judah, a little later, goes into captivity in Babylon. Hanging on, but it's looking uh, mighty threatening and that they might go the same way as the northern kingdom. You see, the Babylon... The Babylonian gods look very powerful. Uh, Their nation has overrun Israel and Judah. uh, So maybe their gods are bigger, more powerful than Yahweh. The temptation will be to start trusting those gods rather than Yahweh. But the message of Isaiah is that God has not deserted them and he does have a great future for them. And so in this next section of Isaiah from chapter 40 onwards, we find that there is indeed a great future for them. There's a distinct transition here between chapter 39 and chapter 40. We're now moving into the period when uh, Judah is in exile in Babylon. Uh, The people are dejected, exhausted, downtrodden, feeling deserted by God. And it's in that sort of situation that the prophet now comes with this message at the beginning of chapter 40 and if you've got your bible there you're very handy to have it open that's the context for the prophet saying comfort comfort my people says your god speak tenderly to jerusalem proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for and so yahweh is about to act about to come to the rescue of his people and bring them back from exile into the promised land. And so in verse 3, we have the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make a straight desert, make in the desert a highway for our God. There's a highway that's going to take them back to Jerusalem. Verse 5, the glory of the Lord is about to be revealed, not just to Israel, but to all nations. As they see Israel coming back into the promised land, uh, it will be a means for all nations recognizing who is truly God. This is a a chapter of good news. Did you pick that up? Verse 9, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout, lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. One of the reasons I've spent a little time recalling the last couple of weeks is, I guess it's good for understanding a series as a whole, but also because to truly appreciate the message of comfort here, the message of good news, you really have to understand the devastation of the people. 
and what's gone before in chapters 1 to 39. So I hope you can recall all of that as we, as we come and hear, indeed, good news and comfort. Have you ever experienced devastation in your life? How can we connect in with what the people back then would have been going through? I want to uh, use this illustration, which is hardly perfect, and I'll point out why it isn't in a minute. Uh, But I hope it captures something of the devastation of the people in exile in Babylon. I was talking to Michael Roach this week. Where's Michael? Oh, there he is right in front of me. I better get the story right, so I'll keep my eye on you. You can pick me up if I'm wrong. Uh, But um, the Roaches were in Darwin in 1974. You all know what happened in Darwin in 1974. Cyclone Tracy, that's right. Um, Christmas Eve, it started all through the night to Christmas Day. Absolutely terrifying circumstances. The uh, destruction was enormous. And Michael has described to me how uh, he and Jay huddled together in a cupboard in their house through the night, a long night, uh, wondering what was going to happen. Well, the first thing was they saw their roof disappear. And then uh, they saw the walls collapsing. But he tells me there was this suction which then pulled them back up again. (laughs) And then they went down again. And, uh, of course, eventually everything was flattened. Tommy did wonders for his prayer life. (laughs) Very fervent prayer, I'm sure, by many that night. But the next day, uh, when they saw the extent of the devastation, they just wondered, does anybody know what's happened? Or how bad it is? Is anyone going to come and help us? They knew they needed help from outside. They couldn't possibly uh, save themselves in that situation. So within two days, a flotilla of ships uh, was prepared in Sydney Harbour and sailed north to Darwin. It was holiday time, so all the crew were everywhere. So they just got enough people together to pack the ships and then flew the rest of them to Cairns, I think, and they joined the ship there for the rest of the way to Darwin. Uh, And then for the next month or more, it was like a war zone. All essential services were cut off, and for a long time, Darwin was totally dependent on the military for supplies and for the cleaning up operation. Now, imagine yourself in that situation and... uh, the next Sunday comes along. I'm not sure what you did the next Sunday, but uh, I would imagine the Christians would still get together and want to worship, want to pray. And I wonder if that Sunday the reading had been from the prophet Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And maybe when they got down to verse 6, it might speak with special impact. The grass withers. And the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. When everything else is stripped away, when there's nothing else, what matters? It's the word of God, that God has spoken, and that God is there, and that God uh, cares. That would be a very powerful time of worship, I would think. I wonder if they'd got through to the the last verse, um, or the last couple of verses. Aren't they marvellous? 
uh, verse 29. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The word of God bringing hope even when life has all gone wrong. Now, just in case there's any confusion and to, uh, so you don't take the analogy too far, I want to be clear that uh, I'm not suggesting for one moment that Cyclone Tracy was God's judgment on Darwin in the way that the exile was God's judgment uh, back then on Israel. The two are totally different historical and theological contexts. Uh, but I use that illustration simply to help us get in touch with the devastation that Judah must have felt, having been invaded, uh, their nation you know, raised to the ground and then dragged off to a foreign land. And my point is, you see, that the, the promise of comfort really only has uh, grip, has, has meaning if you understand the disaster. That's when the heart longs for comfort. And good news only has impact when you realise you can't save yourself, but help is coming. Where you hear that message, yeah, we're in a mess, but help is coming. That's when good news is truly good news and shouted uh, to everyone. But I want to look more carefully now at what is this comfort and this good news that God offers his people here in Isaiah 40. So once again, I hope... You've got an open Bible uh, because I want to point out four ways in which this comfort is offered. The first thing is to note that God recognises the Israelites as his people. In verse 1 it says, comfort, comfort, my people. God still owns them. There was a covenant formula, I will be their God and they will be my people. And so here's one half of the covenant formula Uh, Again, for the people, uh, God assuring them that the covenant is still in place and the people can be restored. In verse 2, he says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. The first verse, he's addressing my people and then he calls them to Jerusalem. Uh, They're synonymous. Uh, And they're also, here's a sense of they're being transported to Jerusalem where indeed they will gather again and be God's people. And so these truths should bring great comfort uh, that they are indeed still loved by God. The second uh, way they uh, receive comfort is that they're forgiven. Verse 2 says the time of punishment is over. They have paid the price for their sin. So it would appear that the punishment has had its effect which is is to make you stand up and say, that is wrong. (laughs) I did go the wrong way. And I need to turn around and do things differently. Uh, Barry Webb, in his commentary, says this, only after they had reaped the full consequences of their apostasy would they become teachable again. And so sometimes we have to keep getting it wrong too many times probably before we realise, hey, I have to turn around, I have to repent, and we become teachable again. We need to understand, of course, uh, that they're not making atonement for their own sin. We have to go forward to Isaiah 53 to see that there is a servant of the Lord who will come, who will indeed make the full atonement 
the one we know, of course, as Messiah Jesus, who will make the one full, complete and sufficient sacrifice uh, for the sins of the whole world. But the point here is simply that the people are forgiven. And this is good news that should bring much comfort. Third point, that God promises to act. So the forgiveness being offered is not just abstract, but it's actually going to be seen in the people moving, journeying back to Jerusalem. A straight path in the desert, a highway for our God. And so it's, it's, it's here it's like a royal procession through the desert and God will have his people with him taking them back to Jerusalem. In verse 11, uh, God's described not as a king but as a shepherd. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. And so it is God, the shepherd king, who will lead them home. God is a great king, but a lowly shepherd. A powerful king, but a tender shepherd. He is both great and lowly, powerful and tender. And he will lead his flock home. And then the, first, the, the final point, God is powerful. It's one thing to promise deliverance. It's another thing to actually deliver. How can the people be sure this promise will be fulfilled? Well, the prophet points them back to creation. The redeeming God of Israel is the creator God of Genesis 1 and 2. And so often the prophets will recount the mighty acts of God in creation to reassure the people that just as God spoke a powerful word and created, let there be light and what? There was light. God speaks. It happens in redemption as well. God speaks and it will happen. It's the same God. So, uh, for example, in verse 12, how big is our God? He's the creator God. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? In verse 13, it's about the wisdom of God. Who has been his counsellor to enlighten him? Well, no one, of course. His wisdom and power uh, in creation And it shows up the futility of human thinking. The nations like to build themselves up into mighty empires with leaders who think they're omnipotent. But verse 17 says, Before him all the nations are nothing. Verse 23, He brings the princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. And so this is the great creator God who's speaking comfort to his people. Um, and there's, some, there's so many there we could refer to, the wonderful, wonderful passages of Isaiah and the Creator God. So here's four reasons Isaiah gives as to why the people should find comfort. They are my people, says God. They are forgiven. God promises to return them to Jerusalem, and because he is the powerful Creator God, he will deliver on that promise. He is mighty to save. So how might we tie this together and um, with a little application? Life's very different for different people, isn't it? For some of us here, you might have had a very smooth ride where things just seem to have fallen into place. You've had a good career, um, not too many dramatic family upsets. If that's the case, can I ask you to... 
use your imagination to try and put yourself in the place of Israel and of Judah, of, of exile, of uh, what that meant for the nation's life to hang in the balance and to wonder if your life hung in the balance. And, you know, even if you've had an easy life, um, all of us are mortal. The grass withers, the flower fades. In the end, we all have to face our death. We all need the comfort of God to know that he is our God with that great challenge. Uh, And so hear this passage, please, if that's your situation. On the other hand, you might have had a lot of tragedy in your life. There are a lot of things that have gone wrong. And sometimes it's felt a bit like the devastation of Cyclone Tracy. And you've just looked around and thought, where is God in this? And is God still looking out for me? Well, I hope you can identify very quickly with the people in exile in Babylon. Uh, that you might uh, understand the devastation uh, that they were going through. And that God's word might speak as powerfully to you as it did to those people back then. Comfort, comfort, my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Advent is a season of longing. Whatever your season of life is at the moment, are you working at developing that longing for God? Because in the end, that's all that really matters. Longing for him, resting in him, and knowing the comfort that only he can bring. I want to pray for us as we finish. Father, we long for you. We are exiles here on earth and we long to be taken home to the heavenly Jerusalem to see you as you are. We only perceive now by faith, but then face to face. And to hear your voice, I will be your God and you will be my people. To know the reality of, full reality of that forgiveness that we've by faith, grasp at the cross. And to know that you are the powerful creator God, mighty to save, and you fulfill your promises. Lord, comfort, comfort your people as we wait in hope. Amen.